0: Good morning. Good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2 is where we are. How it changes everything, how the cross changes everything about our lives. That's our current teaching series. Inside Out Change is the title of this weekend's message. I'll start off with a couple questions for you as you find your way to Acts, chapter 2. What would you think if someone claimed to be a Christian and yet their life now with Christ was no different than their life before Christ. That is, their their A.D. days, their walking with Christ now, was no different from their B.C. days. What would you think? How about if over time someone has been walking with Christ, and over over time after 10, 15, 20 years that they had no or very little change in their lives. What would come to mind? What would you think? The reason why I'm asking you that because we're talking about inside-out change. That's what this text is about. And let me give you the context of this study and actually of this book. And I'm convinced of this. You cannot meet the resurrected Savior, Jesus, and remain the same. Add to that the Spirit-filled experience and you are no longer suited for a normal life explainable by natural causes. And so you got these early Christians in uh, the first century who have this encounter with the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so their lives are changed. He gives them this promise, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses—literally martyrs. And so this happens, and that's what we read about last weekend, uh, first part of chapter two. And so that from that point on, these ordinary people turn their world upside down. I mean, it's amazing, and that's the study that we're in—the first-century Christians so radically changed from the inside out, that they went on and radically changed their world from the outside in. They so loved the people in that culture that they couldn't help but want to listen to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as the Apostle Paul says in Romans one sixteen, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the life change. And that's where we're headed with our study this morning. So it's, it's obviously really good for us to look at our own lives. Am I changing? Have I indeed encountered Him? And two questions we're going to look at this morning. What is inside-out change? What is that? I think there's a lot of people that don't know that. I think there's a lot of people that think they're Christians that aren't. because They really don't understand that. The, the second question we're looking at is then what are the results of inside-out change? Sound like a couple good questions? That's where we're headed this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Take a moment. Let's once again go before the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Maybe if you're here this morning and you got some struggles, you got a lot of things on your mind this morning, maybe from the past week or some things that you're facing in the coming week, this is a great time. The Bible tells us, cast your cares upon the Lord because He cares for us. How many by show of hands would say, that's me? I've got those cares. I've got those issues. Yeah, there's quite a number of hands here this morning. God, you see each and every hand. You see each and every heart. You're here to meet with us this morning. We thank you for that. You've promised us to never leave us or forsake us, that nothing can separate us from your love. And it tells us in Psalm 55, 22, it says, "'Cast your burdens upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will not allow the righteous to be shaken.'" God, we're thankful that You are unchanging. Father in heaven, You never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that brings to us unbelievable stability in our unstable world. And I pray for each person that raised their hand that that they're facing maybe some instability in their lives. Bring stability by Your presence. And though You never change, those who encounter Your greatness and goodness do amazingly change from the inside out, becoming more and more compassionate and courageous, reflecting your beauty and love as the moon reflects the sun. May that be true about each and every one of us. We ask that you would teach us, touch us, and transform us through the study of your word. Through the study of your word, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Let me read our text here to to kick things off. Uh, I'm not going to read all of the sections. I'll just explain some of these sections. It's quite lengthy text, and so we'll work through this. But the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the 120 in that upper room. There's quite a crowd that has gathered as a result of this as they are... uh, really proclaiming the mighty works of God in in a whole lot of different languages. And so the people were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. So there's this crowd that's gathering, and so guess who stands up and begins to preach along with the other apostles? Well, it's Peter. Look at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea! All who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he goes on and he quotes from the Old Testament book of Joel, saying this is the fulfillment of this prophecy in the book of Joel by the prophet Joel. And he goes on, and I'll let you read that on your own. It goes through a lot of detail, talking about God will pour out His Holy Spirit upon us. And we are living in those days right now for God's Holy Spirit to be poured upon our lives. He mentions some interesting things here. Uh, Talks about your sons and daughters shall prophesy. That means just proclaim the wonders of God, the wonders of Jesus. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And then it goes on and talks more about the the great things that God wants to do in and through our lives, we pick up it. We pick it up at verse twenty, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he's got this crowd. He says, "Hey, what you see here is what the prophet uh, Joel prophesied. This is a prediction. It's a fulfillment of a prediction in the Old Testament." Oh, and by the way, now he gets into the gospel message. And he's saying that Jesus is the one that initiated this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which was prophesied by the prophet Joel. And he says in verse 22, we have the gospel message. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he gives the gospel message. Jesus walked among you. He was here. He performed miracles. He lived. He died. He was resurrected. Now he goes on, and this is Peter once again. He's, this is his sermon And he begins to refer back to another prophet, the prophet David, King David, in the Psalms and predicting this Messiah. And from verses 25 on to 35, you have him talking about what David prophesied about the Messiah. So he's giving validity, he's giving proof to them that this isn't just something that just all of a sudden happened out of nowhere. This This is stuff that was predicted in the Old Testament, pointing to this event, but also pointing to this person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pick up the reading here in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, now this is a key verse, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. That's an amazing story. I mean, the, the birth of this brand new church in Jerusalem. And you have 3,000 people. Obviously, more than 3,000 were standing out there as, as Peter is proclaiming this gospel message. And so what we have here is that we can answer the, these two questions. What is, what is inside-out change? And then uh, I believe this text also tells us what are the results of, of inside-out change? We talk about the Christian life being an inside-out change, and so that's where we're headed here with this study. So what is inside-out change? Here's your first fill-in-the-blank. And I think certainly we can draw this from the text. The gospel is intellectually sound and existentially convicting. It's intellectually sound and existentially convicting. What I mean by intellectually sound, I mean, did you notice how he works to prove and give validity, to give credibility, to convince them of what is happening was prophesied in the old. And by the way, this Jesus, he was also prophesied. He was predicted. And so... He gives us in verses 22 through 24 the personal work of Jesus Christ, the basic gospel message. Now, here's the gospel message. How do we know there is a God? Well, we know by creation, conscience, commandments, this book, but but ultimately through Jesus Christ and the cross. He showed up here. God showed up on this planet. That's how we know there's a God. And He walked this planet Earth. And He lived and He died. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And he was resurrected on the third day, and now he has ascended into heaven. And that's this story. It's a pretty powerful story. And those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are never the same. And he he radically changes our hearts. So he gives this gospel message, and then he shows how intellectually sound it is. In verses 14 through 37, did you notice twice in this text, he says that the apostles were, were standing up with Peter. All the apostles are up there with him. He makes that very clear. So they're all up there, standing up there as eyewitnesses. We are eyewitnesses of what what just went down. And so that that builds into the credibility. But you'll also notice that he appeals to the Bible. Uh, Verses 16 through 21 talk about the prophet Joel, talking about this particular event of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then he refers to uh, David, the prophet. Maybe you didn't recognize him as a prophet, the psalmist, but the Bible says, yeah, he, there was, there's a lot of his psalms were predictions about the future and about the Messiah. In verses 25 through 35, David is, and he, this is his argument. David's not talking about himself. He's talking about the Messiah. And so he's building this case. The gospel is intellectually sound. It is convincing. It is credible. And so he gives, this, he gives historical evidence or eyewitness evidence by all the apostles and the people that are there, but also he gives biblical evidence. And then he says a couple times, he says, you crucified this God. You killed God. That's what he says. That's what cut them to the heart. Now think about that for a minute, because that really applies to all of us. You killed God. You killed Jesus. It was your sin that put him on the cross. That's a pretty heavy statement, isn't it? And that's what cut them to the heart. Did you notice that? Verse 37, cut to the heart. The word means literally, the Greek is is a severe or deadly stab wound. So it's severe or deadly stab wound to your identity, to the essence of who you are. So that's what what it's saying. So when you have this encounter with Christ and you begin to understand, wow, the gospel is, is intellectually sound. It, this, there, were, there really is this man by the name of Jesus who walked this planet earth. That's, that's amazing. And then he, I did what? I killed God? That's what cut them to the heart. They begin to realize this is true. And what he did, he did for you and I. And it cut them down to the heart. It cut them to the to the to the very essence of their being. So what does that mean, to be cut to the heart? Being cut to the heart... By the way, you're not a Christian unless you've been cut to the heart. You're not going to experience life change from the inside out unless you have been cut to the heart. You, you know and believe that the gospel message is, is intellectually sound, but it's also existentially convicting. You go, wow! Ah. Wow! It's true. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. He died for me. And so being cut to the heart is when you realize that that any beauty, any love, any acceptance, any significance, any security that falls short of God is, is unsatisfying, in enslaving in the long run. You, you begin to realize that because you've, you've tried to build your life on, on all sorts of different kinds of foundations that were too small for your life because you weren't created to, to make your life all about money or, or accomplishments or acquisitions of things or, or whatever it is that we tend to build our lives on. And when those things get knocked out from under us, it, it cuts you to the heart, your identity. You begin to realize, wait a minute, there's gotta be more to life than this. And that's when Christ begins to speak to us and he says, yeah, there is, it's me. It's me, but we, we have this inclination to try to build our life on anything other, other than him. See, your God is whatever you find the most pleasure in. We tend to find the most pleasure in a lot of other things other than God. And you were created to find your most pleasure in, in God. St. Augustine said, um, our hearts are forever restless until we find our rest in Him. See, it's not until you, uh, you pause long enough between your happiness highs or your pursuits or whatever, or if you can just turn the TV off or turn something off long enough. So that we have to learn to stay focused. And boy, there, you know, with the... Uh, All the electronics and all the stuff that we've got in our life. uh, Boy, if you just shut your TV off for a few hours at night. If you could just unplug, I guess you don't unplug your phone, but if you could get rid of it or do something or turn it off or whatever. It's just, those things interfere. And, And if you would pause long enough, what you would recognize is that there is a restlessness in your heart. And that all the pursuits, all the things that you tend to chase after, all the accomplishments all the positions, possessions, pleasures of life. There is nothing in this life that can satisfy you like like Christ. And that's the inclination of our heart is to try to find that satisfaction somewhere other than Him. Our hearts are forever restless until we find our rest in Him. And our hearts are restless because we have turned our back on the only one that can bring rest to our lives. We've turned our back on Him and sought meaning and purpose in life apart from Him but listen to me, I, I can't say this enough, and I mean it from the depth of my heart because I know that I've experienced it, and I still tend to chase after a lot of other things as you do too, but He is the source of unspeakable and glorious joy. The word glorious, when it says that in 1 Peter eight, glorious means weighty, significant, important. It's weightier than anything in your life. And what I'm learning in my life is that suffering suffering cannot rob me of joy. Idolatry can. And it's my idolatry that robs me of joy. Is because I've built my life on something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm telling you, you build your life on Him, and you will have unspeakable, glorious joy that is unshakable to the people, things, and circumstances of your life. The reason why we freak out, we freak out and stress out, become anxious and bitter and angry and depressed in direct proportion to how we have built our lives on anything and everything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And when those things are being threatened, blocked or lost, obviously so goes our emotional state. But our hearts are forever restless until we find our rest in Him. See, they heard this message and they realized deep in their heart, wow, yes, we need Him. We long for Him. We want Him. So the gospel is intellectually sound, existentially convicting. And uh, here's the next point. There's a difference between being religious and being a Christian. Most people... I. I'll bet you, I think a lot of times I, when I sit down and talk, I talk with a lot of unchurched and churched people, both Christians and non-Christians. I interact with a lot, and, and most most non-Christians and even church people don't really understand this. They think that that becoming a Christian is becoming religious. There's a major difference between the two. In fact, I want you to discuss it with the folks sitting around you. See if you can come up with, with what the distinctions are. What's the distinctions between being religious and being a Christian. Just discuss it real quick. If you can't come up with anything, that's cool, but just talk it over with the people around you. You guys coming up with answers? Some good answers there? I mean, it's a major difference. If you don't understand this, you're not going to understand the Christian life, really. There's a major difference between being a Christian and being religious, vice versa. So what'd you guys come up with? Anything? I just want to yell them out to me right here. What'd you guys come up with? Okay, relationships. So being a Christian is about a relationship. So uh, being religious is really about what? It's not so much relationship, but... Works. Ooh, good answer. Yeah. Is that what some of you guys came up with? Okay, cool. So it's more about works. It's more about works. And uh, good night, David. That just distracted me right there. Just like the... the... He sneezed so loud. It's about sneezing too loud. That's religious, okay? And... uh... Don't do that in church. Okay, you can do that. Uh, just make sure make sure you wipe whatever you sneezed off the back of uh, the person's head right there. That uh I'm kidding. Now, where were we? Okay, here we are. So it's about being religious and Christian. It, here's, here's really, in our text, there's this word repent. Did you notice what he said? They were cut to the heart. They said, what do we need to do? He said, repent. The word repent, the Greek is a change of mind, change of attitude and action towards sin. It's really a 180 and about face that you turn, but it starts from the inside. It's it's a change of attitude and action towards sin. The action comes as a result of the attitude change. Um, I I gave you some cross-references here, Matthew 15, 1 through 20, and 23, 1 through 39. Jesus is talking about, and he's Really kinda of hammering the Pharisees because they were really preoccupied with the externals over the internals. Religion is preoccupied with works, externals over internals. Matthew 15, 1 through 20, Jesus said this, maybe you're familiar with it. He said, These people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They were so preoccupied with all of their rituals and their rules that they were missing the big E on the eye chart. It's me and it's me changing your heart. And you're so preoccupied with all the externals. And then he really hammers him in chapter 23 about this. Once again, St. Augustine said, the key to life change is not the acts of the will, but the loves of the heart. It's not the acts of the will, that's religion, but it's the loves of the heart. You know why when we try to change, our change does not last? It's because we have focused on the acts of the will and not the loves of the heart. And see, what we're talking about... The difference between religious and being a Christian is the difference between moral restrained will versus a supernaturally transformed heart. Religion says, obey and God will bless you. Christianity says, God has blessed you amazingly, therefore you will want to obey. Major difference. Major difference between the two and how you see that. One of my favorite stories uh, about understanding the impact of our beliefs and our behavior is a story of a little ring bear. You guys remember that story? It's kind of a classic dB story, but this little ring bear bear uh, was very cute little four four to five year old little boy and uh, he kind of stole the whole wedding because as he was walking down the aisle, bringing the rings with each step as he would do his little wedding march step with each step, he would turn to the people and go. Rawr, rawr. And so then he would take another step and go like this. Rawr. He did that all the way up and then on the way back out, he did that. And, and kind of stole the, stole the whole wedding, really, because everybody was just laughed and thought it was, he was so cute. And finally, someone decided to ask him during the reception why he did that, what was going on in his, in his mind and his heart. And he goes, uh, he, and they said, so why, why were you growling at folks by carrying the rings? And he said, because I'm a ring bear. Ring bear. A ring bear. See? So he thought he was a ring bear. He didn't have an understanding of what a ring bear is. What's a ring bear? Nobody explained it to him. He's saying ring bear. Rawr, rawr. So his beliefs, his behavior was consistent with his beliefs. His behavior was consistent with his beliefs. That's why it's about changing our beliefs. That's Christianity. Religion is about changing our behavior. Christianity is about our beliefs. In fact, once the gospel frees you from the enslaving pressure to do anything for Jesus, you'll want to do everything for Him. You're going to want to do everything for Him. When it sets you free from trying to earn or achieve your salvation, that's when it sets you free to be changed from the inside out. The more you see that your salvation has nothing to do with how you behave, the more it will change how you behave. See, that's the gospel message. Most people don't know that. See, the focus, so the focus of the Christian life is different from someone who's religious. So what's the focus of the Christian life? The focus of the Christian life isn't about doing See, that's religion. i got to do all these things. I'm not living up to the standard. That's not the focus of the Christian life. The Christian life is to be focused about on what has been done for you through the cross of Jesus Christ. And when your heart is so filled up with all of who He is and what He's done, it will change how you do life. It will change you from the inside out. That's what ultimately changes you. And so you've got to know the difference. By the way, religion is about earning its works righteousness. Christianity is about faith righteousness. It's about putting our faith in Jesus, understanding what we have. Do you have any idea what you have in Jesus? To the degree you understand that is to the degree that you will live with unspeakable and glorious joy. (laughs) And so, I don't always live there. So, therefore, I'm not always living in the reality of the gospel that God has accomplished for me. So I'm living way below my privilege and potential oftentimes, and it's called sin. It's because I have demoted God and replaced Him with something else, and I'm trying to find my sense of identity and well-being in other things. That's what we all do. Here's the next point on your notes. Religious people see sin as breaking God's rules, but Christians see sin as breaking God's heart. That's a big one, major difference here as we unpack this idea. Uh, and I get this from verse, really, 39. Did you notice he says, uh, he said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, some would use this as a as, uh, baptismal regeneration. That, that Baptismal regeneration means that you're not actually saved until you're baptized. And that's not, that's not true because it would be inconsistent with other passages in Scripture. He's not talking about that. He's saying that if indeed you have repented, then the first thing you're going to want to do is you want to get, you're going to want to get baptized. You're going to, want to make a public declaration, dramatization, demonstration of what has happened in your heart. That's what water baptism is. And what you're doing through water baptism, when you're going down into the water and coming back up, you're identifying with the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what you're saying through that is that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you had complete and immediate identity and status change. So when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, He took your sin and He gave you His righteousness. And so you have an immediate status change. You are in the family of God. You are a child of God, a friend of Christ, a member of the family of God. And you have access to the throne room of God. And there isn't anything you can do to mess that up. It's yours by faith in Jesus That's pretty heavy-duty. That's pretty amazing. And that's what water baptism is. So where's the law in all of this? Why do we need to study the Bible and study Scriptures and understand the principles that Jesus taught and, and what the apostles taught? Well, the law is a reflection of the very character of God, but it's also established out of God's love and wisdom for our life so that we can live life to its fullest and experience all that He has for us. So not only reflects the character of God, but it's a great way to live. But we don't live the law to get His approval. We have His approval, therefore we want to live His law because we want to put Him on display. We want to reflect more and more of His character. And so when we sin, we realize That God has given us these principles because He loves us and He's wise, knowing how He created us, knowing our weaknesses and strengths, knowing what is best for us. He's saying, hey, live this way. Live this way. And so when we don't live this way, it's not just breaking God's rules, but it's breaking God's heart because it has been given to us in the context of His love and His wisdom. So, when I turn my back on god when i when I live a way that 's contrary to what this book says basically i 'm trampling on his love and wisdom i 'm saying i i don 't agree with you, I know better than you god and uh, and so that 's important for us to understand. I think a great example of that is found with uh King David. remember what he did did some pretty bad stuff he he uh, he should have been at war, but he wasn't. He was out roaming, and he was up on, on the roof of his house and looked down and saw Bathsheba, brought her up, had sex with her, committed adultery. And then to kind of hide that, because she got pregnant, he tries to finagle and do a lot of other things with her husband. Finally, he has him killed. And, I mean, he does this whole thing. And then finally, the prophet Nathan shows up and confronts him. And so we have his repentance found in Psalm 32 and 51. And in Psalm 51, I've got it there on your notes, 4. This is what he says. And if you don't understand sin, you're going to initially go, wow, why would he say that? He goes, against you, you alone have I sinned, God. Against you alone. Wait, wait, wait. No, no. Not God alone, but you sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, her husband, and this whole nation. But see, he understood that all of sin is ultimately against God, that he had to trample on God's love and wisdom before he trampled on anybody else. So whether we lie, cheat, or steal, whether we commit adultery or whatever, that is secondary to, first of all, trampling on God's love and wisdom for our lives. That's all symptomatic. So that's why you just don't deal with adultery. You deal with the issue that, you know what? I turned my back on God to commit adultery. So that's symptomatic of a much deeper issue within our lives. Against you and you alone that I sinned. And this is what's interesting. And when when I've I have this kind of crazy curiosity at times. Um, I think it's probably healthy. But when when men of God fall, even politicians, or a lot of them aren't men of God, okay? But some of them are. But there are guys that are noted speakers and preachers out there that have fallen. There was one a few years ago uh, from Colorado Springs that fell. It was interesting when I heard his testimony on uh, Larry king and some of these other interview shows i never heard him say this which it troubled me by the way i never heard him say against you you alone did i sin i trampled on his love i never heard him say it. i heard him say it was almost kind of a false repentance you know kind of this which we'll talk about that in a minute but it's almost kind of like oh yeah i really jacked up my life and things are really bad now for me and now i have to go out and look for another job and things are really bad what was me it's like what the heck you trampled on the love and wisdom of god and you don't get that. And you you were preaching and you were a pastor of a really, really large church. And like that, you were like the president of this evangelical organization. And you don't understand that? It troubled me. I thought, whoa. You don't even understand the essence of sin. Who in the world? Why would you get up and preach? What are you saying to folks about sin? You must have some religion going on within you. And, it, and so I'll often listen to hear what people are saying. Uh, David said in Psalm fifty one, twelve, he said, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Now here's what you have to understand. Why would he say that? Because it wasn't that he lost the joy of his salvation and then he sinned. That's exactly what happened. He lost the joy of his salvation, then he sinned. That's what I was that's what I meant to say. <laughs> I just flipped it. That's exactly what happened. It wasn't that he sinned and lost the joy of his salvation, but he lost the joy of his salvation, and he sinned. Sin is what you do when you're no longer satisfied with God. So when he's saying, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, he lost the joy of his salvation, and that's why he sinned. Because sin, the power that sin has over us, the only power sin has over us is the power that it promises us happiness. And the reason why we pursue sin is because we think that we will be happier than that of following Christ. So the power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's. So you sever the root of sin with a superior joy in Christ. So so if you want to overcome the issues of your life, and the sin, the hurt, the heartaches, the, the habits, and I know that... As I do, we all struggle with specific sins in our lives. If you're not familiar with those sins, specific to you in your life, then hang out with us long enough and I'll maybe be able to point those out to you. That's what we do here. And, uh, but you need to be in touch with that because you're not perfect. You're not walking on water. So I know that there's issues in your life that you struggle with. So the way you overcome those issues, addictions, hurts, habits, and hangups, by stirring up your appetite for God. My favorite story in this is my, uh, my grandson, Braden. I've shared it many times, but I'll share it again for those that haven't heard it. And I'll never forget this. He came over to our house, and our, ki- our grandkids will come through the little foyer entryway, and then they'll make a right turn because you got, we got this room, Russell's old room, that we turned into a playroom. And it's a, kind of a second bedroom. We've got one of those beds that goes up into the walls. So we can pull it back down when we have people staying with us. But, but they'll go in there and play. I'll never forget this. He came out and he just, at this time in his life, he loved his cars. And he had this arm full of cars, cars. And he was just like, cars, cars. About the only word he could say. Cars. Cars. Like some of you with all the stuff that you have. But uh, like all of us, actually... And it was really interesting. It was really cute. It was really funny. But it was a lesson. And I, I remember him coming into the foyer and he's going, cars, cars, cars. And then he looks and he does a double, double take and he sees the candies on the coffee table. What does he do with the cars? He dumps them. Whoa! Candies! Candies! And so we filled him up with candies and sent him home. Um... He overcame his affection for cars in direct proportion to this increased affection for candies. That's how you deal with the sin in your life. Man, you just increase your affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to be desired and delighted in more than anything. Man, I'll tell you, you know this. He is unbelievably satisfying and fulfilling to know Him, to walk with Him, to, to experience Him in your life. So you overcome, you know, these, these desires, these, these big desires. And of, many of us struggle with a lot of big desires in our life. It's going to take time. But as you increase your appetite for God over time, you will be able to say no to those and be able to pursue Him more completely and totally and fully. Um, it's, 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 this, it's the explosive power of a new affection. It's choosing one thing over another. And so you choose God over sin because you want God more than you want sin. That's just all there is to it. You know, it'd be like choosing one thing over another. It's, uh, why eat, why drink crappy coffee from circle K when you can have Starbucks? Dunkin' Donuts. Somebody said it's disgusting over here. That's sacrilegious. You know that, um, then some of you are saying, "Yeah, you're saying this. Why pay twenty bucks for a cup of coffee when you can pay just a dollar at Circle K?" Okay, so it's just it's a matter of choices and what is the greatest affection within your life. What's most important? Now, I gave you a couple of verses here. Second uh, Corinthians seven ten through eleven makes a distinction between false repentance and true repentance. Godly. In ungodly repentance. False repentance is sorrow for the pain sin has caused me. That's false repentance. It's sorrow for the pain sin has caused me. As I was talking about this guy, and when I hear people repent of sin, a lot of times they say, oh man, this really messed up my life. But true repentance is sorrow for the pain sin has caused God. Romans 2, four it says, it is the goodness of God that leads to repentance. So my question for you, do you see God as being that good? That's how you're going to overcome these lesser... They're going to become lesser affections in your life when He becomes your greatest affection. And see, that's what's happening in these people's lives. He becomes their greatest affection. Now, next point. Religious people are motivated out of fear and pride, but Christians are motivated out of a heart smitten by the love and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Well, I need to get rolling here because I've got a video that I was going to show that lasts about 30 minutes this morning. And uh, no, it's not that long. It is about a seven-minute video. And I'm going to debate on whether or not to use it. Use it? Let's take a vote here real quick. Dave said use it. You guys want to see the video? And it, it actually helps us with this next point because... You have the distinction between, and it's from the passion of the Christ, it's the distinction between Judas and Peter. And Judas, uh, what does Judas do? Judas killed himself, and he experienced what? Condemnation. Here's how you can tell the difference between whether you're religious or whether you really understand Christianity, is that you have turmoil with your sin, but the one drives you away from Christ, the other one draws you to Christ. See, conviction, when you understand conviction, when you blow it, when you sin, you begin to realize that much more, how, oh, how much I need him. You run to him. Condemnation tends to, it's about shame, and it pushes you away from Christ, and that's based on religion. See, if, if you're, if you're under, uh, under works righteousness, you're still trying to earn your right standing with God, and what that does is that you're either full of pride when you hit the standards and look down on everybody else that's not, or when you're not living up to the standards, you have incredible despair in condemnation and you're going to hang yourself. You're going to beat yourself up over it. And that's what Judas did. But but Peter Peter did something. Peter died to self and came to Christ. Everyone's motivated by something. You're going to be either motivated by fear and pride or you're going to be motivated by a heart that's smitten by the beauty and the love of Jesus Christ. You need to always ask yourself, why do I come to church? Why do I do what I do? Why is What is my uh, moral, virtuous behavior based on? Is it because there's cameras on me, extrinsic motivation, fear and pride? Or is it because, man, I just love Jesus and I don't care who's watching. It doesn't matter. I'm going to put Him on display and I'm going to live for Him. See, that's the, that's the difference. Let me, let me show you this video. The reason why I wanted to show you this is because in Luke 22, Matthew, Mark, Luke talk about Peter's denial, but only in Luke there's a scene on after his third denial, Peter looks up and Jesus looks at him. And he's cut to the heart. That's what that word means. He's cut to the heart. And there's a time in our lives when we, when we sin and we look up and we realize, man, I'm trampling on the love and the wisdom of God. And he loves me. So watch this. See which one you best fit into in each category. Watch it. Interesting uh, heavy-duty clip. So you've got this contrast between uh, Peter who denied but came back to Christ and Judas who betrayed but was driven uh, in despair. And uh, it's the difference between condemnation and conviction. And the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I I, I put down here also uh, 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 Zechariah 12.10, it says that that they will be pierced by the one. It's prophecy talking about this early church and all of us, actually, that we will be pierced by the one that we pierced, and we will weep as though we, uh, we have seen the loss of our firstborn son. It's that idea that when we see Christ on the cross, we understand that our sins put him on the cross. So what are the results uh, of this inside-out change? When you are pierced by the one you have pierced, is what it means to be a Christian. And then what, what are the results of that? I think here's the first one, freedom from the penalty of sin. He says in verse 38, for the forgiveness of your sins. There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, has it removed our sins from us? This is what's amazing. The thing that convicts us, see if you can track with me on this, the thing that convicts us comforts us. How's that? Yeah, he died because of my sins, but he also died for all of my sins. My sins put him there, but he stayed there and went there for all of my sins. So the thing that convicts me comforts me. The cross tells me that I'm terribly sinful, but it also tells me that I am terribly loved. The cross tells me that he won't let anything come between him and you. The cross tells us that He lost everything so that He wouldn't lose you. Do you understand that? Do you understand to what extreme measures He went to to get you, to die on the cross for you, for you to have your deepest satisfaction in Him? And He forgives us. And then the second one is freedom from the power of sin. So it's this, this uh, highest pleasure in Him is that that's what, severs the root of sin in our life. Verse 38, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise, the thing that comforts us, convicts us. So knowing that my sins are completely forgiven, He died for all my sins, so now I want to die to all of those things that would interfere with my relationship with Him and interfere with me, putting Him on display and See, a religious person says, I better obey or he will reject me. And so you work on the will. That's religion. But a Christian says, I obey because he won't ever reject me. I obey because he won't ever reject me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And so what that does, that melts the heart. I obey because... He went to such extreme measures, so what convicts us comforts us, and then what com- comforts us the fact that my sins are completely forgiven. His, his arms are wide open for me, it convicts me, it keeps me from wanting to chase after anything, anything else other than him, and then the next one it's, it leads to absolute lordship of Jesus christ verse thirty six he says he is both Lord and savior verse thirty seven Did you notice their response? What shall we do? They were cut to the heart. What shall we do? In other words, we will do anything. Your wish is our command. See, that's lordship. It's like God. I, I want to. I'll go anywhere for you. I'll do anything for you. Whatever you want me to do, I want to live my life for you. Have you ever wondered why people get angry at God? It's not lordship, is it? See what's happening when they get angry with God. It's. It's either He's the master of. And you're the servant or you're the master and he's the servant. People get angry because oftentimes they're the master and he's the servant. God didn't do what I wanted him to do. See, lordship is saying, hey, God, whatever this book says, I'm going to do it because you're going to empower me with your presence to be able to pull it off. But whatever you send my way, I'm cool with it because you know what's best for me. See, that's lordship. And then the last one is Christian community. It becomes a priority. Did you notice this? There were added that day... About three thousand souls. What were they added to? Well, we're going to talk about it next week. What they were added to? They were added to community, the Jerusalem Church, where they devoted themselves. Verse forty-two, where they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. And so, next week we'll talk more about that. And what that tells us is that the things that we we uh, the things that we value, we prioritize. The things we prioritize, we practice. And so, church and. Bible study and prayer and hanging out with other Christians will be a priority to those who have been cut to the heart because they want to grow in their relationship with God. Here's our last quote. Before you can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Stand with me for closing prayer. So the thing that convicts us comforts us. The thing that comforts us convicts us, keeps us from wanting to chase after sin. God, thank You for this. I pray that we would at Desert Breeze truly be a place that we are cut to the heart, that we have this inside-out change, that we understand the difference between being religious and, and being Christians, really knowing You and experiencing You and that we would realize that it's not just when we sin, it's not just breaking Your rules, but it's breaking Your heart. It's trampling on Your love and wisdom. And we pray that we would not be motivated by fear and pride, but by a heart that is smitten by uh, Your love and beauty. Lord, we want You more than anything. May we be so satisfied in You, God, that we will die to get more of You. We will do anything to get more of You. May that be... May our hearts cry here at Desert Breeze, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you.